This is The Book Show and I'm Garrett Carr. My book, The Rule of the Land, was published last year and it told the story of my journey along Ireland's border, a border that is now a daily feature in our news as Brexit looms. However, there's something else going on here in Northern Ireland. The political environment is in stalemate, but the literary landscape is vibrant and that's what I'm looking at on tonight's show. And I'm beginning in Stormont, the seat of political power in Northern Ireland. Yet no politician has sat here for over a year and a half. The Stormont Assembly is on a hilltop. From where I am standing, I can see right across the city and to the hills beyond. Stormont, with its neoclassical facade, marble pillars and atmosphere of power, has something of Mount Olympus about it, the home of the Greek gods. That's why we're meeting Michael Hughes here. His new novel, Country, is a retelling of Homer's Iliad filtered through the Troubles. This is the very simple idea at the heart of the novel. Achilles is Ackle, an IRA sniper. Agamemnon is an IRA captain called Pig. Hector and Paris are now British soldiers. Fury. Pure fury. The blood was up. Lost the head completely. Ackle, the man from the west. The best sniper the IRA ever seen. All called him Ackle, but his name was plain Liam O'Brien. What was the start of it? The whole wrecking match that sent so many strong souls roaring down to hell. Dogs chewing up the guts ground into the road, birds pecking at the splattered bits of their brains. The way London wanted it to go. The way it always is. Here's what. Pig and Ackle fell out. The O.C. and the Trigger Man. Bad, bad news. And that was Michael Hughes reading from Country. Michael, grafting the characters of Homer's Iliad onto Northern Ireland's recent past is a brilliant idea, I think. The truth is, this book comes out of a very long process of me trying to write about the Northern Ireland conflict. It wasn't working, but a number of things sort of lined up to make me look at it from a different way. But, but in my memory, the most significant was the series of, of terrorist attacks in France a few years ago. And talking to friends about that who were very distressed and disturbed by people, the, the idea that, that people think this is the right way to go about things. And, and I would try to explain to them that I grew up in a culture where things of that nature went on. And I realised that that's what I'd been dodging and avoiding and shying away from in what I was trying to write about the conflict, the actual violence and the actual people involved in the violence. But that's something I've no experience of. And, and as a fairly bookish, sort of quiet sort of guy, my way into it uh, was to read about it, to try to help me think about how do you write about war? So I got Cats 22 and For Whom the Bell Tolls and Slaughterhouse Five and All Quiet in the Western Front and on back through that. I already had a copy of the Iliad from University Days and I thought I'll start there since that's the big one. And I was maybe five or six books into the 20 odd books of the Iliad when I thought this is it. Everything I want to say is here. And did you recognise it immediately? Did you think I have it here now? I discovered that there were so many uh, similarities between the culture and the nature of the conflict. It was a very local conflict. It was 
fought between people who knew each other and knew each other's families and knew where each other was from and they're constantly stopping each other even as they're fighting going wait a minute aren't you from that place over there and wasn't your dad the man who such and such which is absolutely natural to people in Ireland and the original Homer is full of that originally in whatever form it took before it was written down it would have been listened to it would have been recited or read aloud and I wanted to preserve the orality of that the sense of a storytelling culture the sense where somebody might sit you down and say now where do you hear this I've got a great story for you so I wanted to give it the feel of a yarn even though my intention was very serious I spent a lot of time trying to work on a voice and a style that would make it seductive to listen to and pleasurable to listen to a lot of northern Irish writers have felt a need perhaps to uh uh, maybe to have a bit of balance about things. I suppose but so many of the issues are so raw. They don't get into the, the glory or the blood or the brotherhood of the war narrative. Whereas what you've been able to do with country is sort of get into those themes. The blood and guts and the glory of war. When you look at the Iliad, it is incredibly gory and incredibly nasty and the violence is intensely cruel. Like a ridiculous horror film modern days. It really is that extreme. On the other hand, it is full of honour and glory and speeches about what a great thing they're doing and how important this is and how valuable this is and the culture we are told at the time really valued that. So how do you balance the the appalling cruelty of what they're doing with the belief that that's glorious and honourable? And to me, that is still the question. Is it ever right to physically destroy another human being in the service of an idea? That's the real question you're dealing with, and there's no pleasant way to do that. It is always horrible and nasty and, and tragic and brutal. But there are people who believe it is right, and I'm not, it's not for me to say. I don't know if it's, right, if it's ever right or not. And how do we cope now, looking back 20, 30 years, as a society, with the fact that there are people among us who believe that was the right thing to do and who had a certain amount of support in the local community as well? We can't just shrug that off and say, well, that's all over and done with and that was then. These are the same people who are walking around now, the same people who are involved are part of society and in some cases part of government. And I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just trying to let the characters on both sides have their say. So, yes, you mentioned government there. And we're here right now outside Stormont Assembly. There are a couple of instances in country where Stormont is referred to. And I wonder, is that your way of drawing in the Olympian gods that, that featured quite heavily in the original Iliad? There was references to the higher-ups and this sense that the fighters on the ground are being directed or steered or ignored by higher forces. How did that play into the writing of country? One of the challenges when I set myself to use the Iliad as, as the basis of a modern novel is what to do about the gods. They actually have a very significant role to play in the narrative and the characters on the ground have a real belief in them. And the gods are also not unified in the way you might, the Christian or post-Christian way of thinking of, of sort of God and the angels, and they're all, they're all marching in time. The gods are fighting among themselves hugely, and they're on different sides on the ground. So it occurred to me the way to do that was to let the politicians stand in for the gods. The reason that felt like it worked for me was that the ancient Greek gods are not really gods in the way we understand it. The main fact about them is that they're immortal. They can't die. So when they fight each other in the Iliad, there's a weird slapstick quality to the violence because there's nothing really at stake. They can't actually kill each other. They just are amusing themselves, ultimately. Now, that's not the case with politicians. There may be exceptions. But what struck me was that the people who were ultimately calling the shots 
literally, making the significant decisions on the ground were not the people who were putting themselves in harm's way. Some of those politicians have been in harm's way, but they are not setting themselves up as combatants. They're not ultimately putting themselves on the front line, as it were. They're pulling the strings of others who are doing that on both sides of the equation. And I felt that was a, a, a fruitful road to go down to think about that dynamic. Yeah, um, and you've certainly succeeded. It's great to talk to you, Michael. And Country by Michael Hughes is published by John Murray. The landscape is changing. Some of Northern Ireland's writers seem to have the pulse of this, and they are shown as versions of Northern Ireland that don't allow us to slip into preconceived notions of what our society is. The old positions, the old binaries. They were doing what I think writers ought to, making us see the world afresh. In Northern Ireland, it could be a vital act of reinvention. I think people are ready for it. I'm with two writers. Paul McVeigh's debut novel, The Good Son, won the 2016 Polari Prize for LGBT fiction. He's also a playwright and author of comedies, essays and short fiction. Jan Carson also writes short fiction and has published short stories and a novel, Malcolm Orange Disappears. Her second novel will be published next spring. You're both writers who left Northern Ireland and have now returned. Has it helped you gain a purpose for your work? When I was growing up in Northern Ireland, I definitely felt that I didn't pick up books about me. And then when I was living in England, I often found people who knew nothing about Northern Ireland at all. It was just this kind of invisible uh, place. Growing up a bit like Paul, I didn't see very much of myself represented in terms of the, the Protestant identity here in Northern Ireland. And I find that a lot outside of, of Ireland, people have no concept of what the Protestant identity looks like in Northern Ireland. And to be honest, they're not that interested. They're much more drawn to kind of the Irish language and the traditional Celtic influences and things. So it's an interesting conversation to have outside of here. So if you can imagine that we're in the United States, say, how would you uh, represent your cultural background to people who didn't have, have any idea of it? Um, I think I always start with saying that there are a multiplicity of different Protestantisms in Northern Ireland. People's perception of Protestantism in Northern Ireland is usually linked to kind of an urban identity, mostly a working class identity. And I grew up rural, Presbyterian, almost apolitical. Do you think there's an audience for it? What what, what are you experiencing when you bring these fresh perspectives on Northern Ireland? Um, yeah, well, I, I wrote a book called The Good Son, set in Belfast during the Troubles from a perspective of a 10-year-old boy who's exploring his sexuality. He has no idea uh, who he is. And what one of the things that interested me was, you know, how we put people in boxes because you kind of want to go, is he is he gay? Is he bisexual? Is he straight? Because he, he's in love with the girl next door, but he gets feelings for this hurry legs of an older man or the little boy who's just joined to school, but he's in love with the girl the whole time. So the whole, I was playing with the idea because we as a reader want to uh, categorize him and part of the book was saying to the reader you know just leave him alone and just let him be himself and he'll be whatever he wants and as long as you don't push him and shape him and squeeze him and mold him the way you want in your image to make you feel better. I think that's really interesting what Paul said this idea of, of binaries you have to be one thing or the other 
people aren't comfortable with the grey spaces in between and that is what I think is particularly interesting in the art that's coming out at the minute. There is a lot of exploration of the grey space in between. I think we really need that because how do you understand a difficult political situation if you can't explore those places that are neither one thing nor the other? Working class people are the same, poor people are the same and the poverty and the troubles. We have that shared experience. I've noticed in the press you're often referred to as a working class writer. And how do you feel about that title or that categorization? Yeah, I'm really proud of it, actually. I think there are a lot of barriers to working class writers. Um, you aren't brought up to feel like you have a seat at the table. There's no well-trodden route for you to follow. You often don't have the financial backing. The, wor- the wages are so low. And I definitely felt that growing up. I didn't think that writing was for me. What's one of the reasons my first novel didn't come out till I was 45? Because even though I was writing before that, um, I was writing for stage because I didn't have the confidence to write prose. I, I, I wrote dialogue, not, not, not sentences. <laughs> like, <laughs> Will you read us a little bit from the opening of The Good Son? I was born the day the trouble started. Wasn't I, masses me? It was you that started them, son, says she, and we all laugh, well, except our Paddy. I'll put that down to his pimples and his general ugliness. It must be hard to be happy when you have a face like that. I almost feel sorry for him. I spy a dirty big love bite on his neck and I store this ammunition to defend myself against future attacks. Steamy, flowery smelling disinfectant fills my nose and joins the sweet tasting frosties in my mouth as Ma passes with a tin bucket and yard brush. Ma only cleans the yard when something's up, and that would be my da, as usual. Do you want a hand, mummy, says me. No, son, says she, disappearing out the back. She didn't even look at me. Do you want a hand? Our Paddy says in a girl's voice, you wee gay boy. I'm telling my mummy and you, I say. I'm telling my mummy and you. Our Paddy mimics me. John, can I ask you, you spoke a moment ago about wanting to break down the binaries. So... How do you do that? How how does this inform what you write? Breaking down the binaries comes back a lot to perspective and how you approach a story. There's a, a big elephant in the room, which is do writers have to engage with the political background here? Do they have to write about the troubles? And I turned 18 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So my childhood was in one era of Northern Ireland and my entire adulthood has been in the other. And for me, the troubles are present, but they're maybe positioned in a different place from the generation of writers who came before me. They're not front and central so much. They become a backdrop to the work. Um, I don't think I could ignore that those things happened, but I have to be careful at the perspective I approach from. I also write with um, mostly magic realism and having that weapon in my arsenal of being able to be a little bit absurd and fantastical helps to ease you into the grey space you're not trying to convince people that this is realist and so it allows you to maybe be a bit more playful and a bit more provocative Can you talk just a little bit more about the magic realism how does this map on to I suppose a city that's very much associated with a realist tradition? I always have written absurdist kind of magic realist fantastical stuff and to me it seems obvious that in a a country steeped in myth and legend and an oral um, tradition that we would have more non-realist prose and we really don't have that much in the last 50 years and as we move into this kind of era of fake news and what is truth and 
why are we holding on to realist fiction so tightly? You know, should there not be a lot more experimental, playful, fantastical explorations of even difficult subjects like the troubles and the political situation here? Perhaps you'll read something for us from your new novel. But having read this piece, it doesn't seem like magical realism. Can you explain the process? For a long time, I've been fascinated by some of the the symbols and the outplaying of Protestant culture and just this idea that they are so bizarre sometimes and so exaggerated. It is almost fantastical. So things like the enormous pyres of bonfires we have on the 11th night. And when I talk about those in the States, people actually think that is magic realism or that, you know, the sound of a lamb beg drum. There's something exaggerated and enormous about it that blurs the line between the fantastical and the real. It is summer in the city now. It's a World Cup summer. The people here are particularly fond of football because it is a game of two sides and involves kicking. The sound of televised crowds can be heard grumbling through the open windows of every other house in the east. Drink has been taken. More drink will be taken. In the morning, the smell of it will be like a damp cloth in a closed room. Overhead, a helicopter hovers. It is a sort of insect humming. Its blades turn the hot air this way and that. It is barely moving. The women, who are mostly indifferent to sport, have dragged dining room chairs into the street. They sit in front of their houses like fat Buddhas watching the traffic idle. They wear their skirts hoiked up above the knee, revealing splayed thighs and varicose veins, winter fur and occasionally the fine-laced ghost of a petticoat hem. They are their mothers and their grandmothers before them. They have been guarding these streets in similar fashion since the shipyards demanded houses. A hundred terraced houses rose in response, and this became known as the Glorious East. We started recording today by talking to Michael Hughes up at Stormont, which, as you know, hasn't sat now in over a year and a half. Is something in the literature filling this space as well? Is there something coming out with these voices from Belfast that is seeking to address the silence that is coming from our political class? So, uh, you know, Northern Ireland is in a very specific situation. You have Brexit coming up where, you know, four of the counties of the six voted to remain, uh, only two voting to leave, yet the ruling party is voting leave. You know, so it's against the wishes of their own uh, people, the, their voters. And then you have the same with the LGBT issues. The majority of people want gay marriage here. The, the majority of the councillors do as well. But uh, the DUP use their veto to stop that happening. Uh, when you're in a place where the ruling party are ignoring the democratic wishes of their people, then you're going to get a lot of pissed off people and you're going to get a lot of people who are going to get vocal about that. And I think that's the very special c- circumstances that we're in now. People are angry and they have material to sink their teeth into and there certainly is that climate at the minute. There's plenty for us to be writing about. When there's an appetite there for work, I think the the writers will step up to fill it. Thank you both, Paul and Jan. The Good Son by Paul McVeigh is published by Salt. Jan Carson's next novel is called The Firestarters and it'll be published next spring by Doubleday. Jan Carson calls this part of the city the Glorious East, and that's where I am now to meet Wendy Erskine. Her debut collection of short stories, Sweet Home, has just been published, and they are set in the church halls, beauty parlours, and suburban homes of this area. 
an area she knows well. This area is one of the sort of arterial routes, you know, coming out of Belfast. This is a traditionally, I suppose, a fairly working class area. We've got quite a lot of second-hand shops, bakeries, um, we've got 6A bus, as we see, going past here. And there's quite a lot of uh, immigrants in this area as well. More so, absolutely, than there, than there used to be. Um, and you can certainly see that in the number of um, Polish or Eastern European shops that there, that there are around here. Yeah. Jean still walked the same route up one side of the road and down the other, even though Marielle and Anton had left almost two years ago. The Indian restaurant had gone out of business and the bar had supposedly caught fire. The Chinaware shop that had held on for so long was no longer there, and in its place there was a shop that sold bodybuilding supplements. There was a new estate agent's, three by three photos of new houses in the window. There was a new chemist shop. W7 was in there, at the W7 stand. W7 was a budget makeup brand, one of a number that ran the length of the shop. W7 stood with the usual de Monte bag, but at close range Jean could see that some of the glass pieces had fallen off, loose threads hanging where they used to be attached. I'm here with Wendy Erskine in her neighbourhood, the Craiger Road in East Belfast. In your collection Sweet Home, you focus on East Belfast. And can you tell us, who do you write about? What kind of people? The people that I'm writing about, I think, are people that don't exist in the real world but could exist in the real world. So um, I'm looking for people that some people might regard as fairly mundane individuals, you know, people who work in shops in town, doctor surgeries, beauticians, shops, gardeners, possibly cleaners, lower middle class, working class people. I'm not particularly wanting to write about people that I would regard as exceptional or people who would be judged by the world as exceptional. In your stories, there's this beautiful balance between heartbreak and humour. Yeah, that's what I'm aiming for. Humour, it needs to be funny. I know that Anne Enright said that, you know, if you try and avoid humour in your writing, you're avoiding something that happens in life a lot of the mm-hmm. time. So you shouldn't be, shouldn't be frightened of, of making things humorous at times. But at the same time, yes, things are fairly heartbreaking, often in a reasonably mundane as opposed to quite an epic way, I think. One of the things I'm absolutely trying to avoid is unearned emotion. I heard someone say about sentimentality was basically unearned emotion. You know, things aren't being, um, when, when there are happy moments that I've sort of worked to achieve those. Whenever things are sad, it's not mawkish, gratuitous. It is something that's been kind of quite earned and therefore hopefully, as you say, if, if the end product is something that feels heartfelt, then that's good. Can we just hear a little bit from one of the stories in your collection? Arab States, Mind and Narrative. This is a story that has something in common with Death in Venice, although this time round it is a woman, Paula, who works in a doctor's surgery and she becomes quite fixated on a person she used to know when she was at university who is now a Middle Eastern correspondent. And she's gone to visit him in Newcastle-upon-Tyne when he's doing a book event. She checks the email one more time and thinks again that the tone's fine, but she still hovers over the send button. She's messaging to say that she'll be attending the event on Friday in Newcastle upon Time. It's a generic work address rather than a personal one, but it was all she could find online. It's hard to know quite how to sign it off. She tried it first, your friend of yesteryear, Paula, but that sounded too whimsical, so she changed it to Paula McRae, open brackets, Pearson, close brackets, 
Queen's University Belfast, 88-91, which couldn't be faulted on fact. So, exciting next day when an email comes back. Paula, good to hear that we were able to make it along to the event at Gosforth Library. Best, Ryan. Under the message there are links to two sites where the book is now available for purchase. It feels a little generic. No harm in making things a little less oblique at her end. She composes another one. Yes, coming over from Belfast specially. Slightly more effusive, but no further email comes from Ryan Kedroff Hughes. But then he's probably on the road by now. There's really poignancy about it and yet a truth to it. And do you think this is when we are at our most human? When we're weak? When we're, we're not getting it quite right? Yeah, I, I think so. And for me as a reader, that's probably when people are at their most interesting. I don't terribly want to read about success stories, people for whom everything has gone swimmingly their whole lives. Most of these characters in this collection are experiencing moments of crisis, moments of difficulty. Yeah, I suppose that is when they're at their most human. The stories in Sweet Home don't pay too much attention to the traditional binaries and political or religious divides. How does this background fit into your work or is it just simply something you react against? Those binaries are reality for people day after day, you know, in terms of where they live, in terms of where they go to school, in terms of their actual their actual lives. But I suppose when that's translated into fiction, there's no reason necessarily for me to then transfer those into my into my stories. I have tried to write about characters who are not entire who are, some some of them are defined by those boundaries but not but not many of them but do you have a reason not to enforce those issues into your stories is there are you consciously thinking it's time to do something else to an extent yeah because I, I feel people have people have done it in the past and many people have done it very very well people in northern ireland people in belfast people in east belfast have so much else going on than or people you know this or that in terms of the binaries you know so say for example a character like Gil Courtney who's in the 77 pop facts the sort of like rock star monkey I mean that that is in a very specific East Belfast locale but that that could be transferred to any place basically in um, Europe or or the states so I'm I'm interested in those in those sorts of characters and not just people that are defining themselves in terms of the the traditions that we have here it's been great talking to you Wendy Sweet Home is published by Stinging Fly Press. Before we go, we'll hear Wendy Erskine read a short paragraph from one of the stories in the collection, 77 Pop Facts You Didn't Know About Gil Courtney. Thank you to Wendy. Thank you to you also for listening. The show is produced by Regan Hutchins and the series producer is Zoe Cummins. For 50 years, the house next door, 168 Tildarg Street, was occupied by Arthur McCourt, who was quoted as saying, there's something to be said, I really do believe, for being ordinary and having no great talent at anything. I would really wonder if it would have been better for that fella to have gone into a job just like his father, gone to work at Mackey's or wherever, got married, had a couple of kids, then go like a firework, then nothing. In fact, worse than nothing, because I saw the state of him. And for what? What's he got to show? Some tunes nobody listens to.